0: We're currently exploring the topic of gospel-minded prayer from Philippians 1, 3-11. So if you would please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Again, that's Philippians 1, verses 3-11. And let's begin this morning by reading this passage together, Philippians 1, 3-11. Paul says this, They're the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. You probably remember the parables pretty well on your own. In the first one, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a treasure in a field. A man comes along, stumbles upon the treasure, and upon realizing the great value of the treasure, he sells everything he has to go and buy the field. In the second one, Jesus compares the kingdom to an incredibly valuable Pearl. A businessman comes along, discovers the pearl, and realizing its great value, also sells everything he owns to purchase it. The point in the two parables is the same, it's just told from different perspectives. The kingdom of heaven is compared to the treasure in the one parable and to this pearl in the other, meaning that in both instances, the kingdom is described as incredibly valuable. Just how valuable is it? Well, it's valuable enough that a poor man will give away everything he owns to get it. But it's also valuable enough that a rich man will also do the same. That's the point of the parables. In the one instance, Jesus is saying that the kingdom is an absolute bargain for those who have nothing. You take a Matthew Levi, for instance, a man who's spiritually bankrupt, a tax collector, a sinner. And while the Gospel does demand that a man like this repent of their sin, it's still basically the equivalent of Bill Gates coming along and offering you a billion dollars for your 20-year-old rusted-out Ford Escort. right? You'd be an absolute fool to not make that trade. But you know what? You'd be just as foolish not to take that offer for your brand new Lamborghini. You see the point? The Lamborghini has some value, but it still pales in comparison to the greater worth of this offer, right? In in this case, the offer of the kingdom of heaven. That's the message of the pearl. There are those who will suffer a kind of loss in this world for the sake of the gospel. It's not all gain, right? They'll lose their reputation, perhaps, be considered fools for their belief in the gospel, Maybe they'll lose some close friends. Who knows, under the right circumstances, perhaps they'll lose their job or even their very lives. But it's as Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Either way, the the point is that the surpassing value of the kingdom far exceeds whatever a person must give up to obtain it. For some, it's only their poverty that they have to surrender. For others, it's their riches. Either way, they both must be willing to lose everything. And either way, the deal is an absolute steal. This is the point of the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. And one of the things that I love about these parables is how simply they illustrate the idea that our lives are ultimately shaped by whatever it is we value most. Take the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus seeking eternal life, and although he apparently lives an incredibly religious life, there's ultimately one thing that he loves more than eternal life, more than God, and that's his possessions. And So he walks away in that instance, sad, conflicted, because as much as he wants eternal life, he wants his things more. His life, even his eternal destiny, is shaped by that base desire, by the thing that he values most. People do this every day. They wake up in the morning and they get out of bed, they eat their breakfast, and they run off to work. Again, why? Why do they get out of bed? Why do they go to work? It's because there's something that they want, right? Something that they value enough to make them give up most of their waking hours in this life to obtain For most people, that something might be something as simple as food and a roof over their heads. They realize that as much as they like to lie in bed or go fishing or visit friends and family that day, they like to eat more. In fact, you could probably say that for many people, it's because they enjoy these other things so much that they get up and go to work, because without the food and shelter supplied by money, they'll never have the chance to enjoy these things, because they'll be dead. They've done a little cost-benefit analysis, and as much as they don't like work, the benefits it provides outweighs the cost, and that's why they go to work in the morning. For others, it may not be food that drives them so much as esteem. They want to be praised by men. For still others, there may not be anything. That's why they don't get out of bed. They simply value rest the most. They enjoy not working, and so they'll gladly sacrifice all the comforts they could have from working, so long as it means that they have more free time. Point being... All of us have things that we want, things that we believe have some inherent value, a value that far surpasses everything else, and these things ultimately drive the types of decisions we make. They shape our life. So what ought to be those things for the Christian? What is supposed to be the thing that we value more than anything else? What is the treasure that's supposed to shape our lives? If you're sitting here this morning, I'd venture that I can guess at at least one of the desires that drives you, and that's the kingdom of heaven. The reason you're sitting here today is because you've stumbled upon the hidden treasure. Or you you realize the worth of the great pearl on at least some level, and so you're willing to surrender everything to obtain it. But is it as simple as that? Is our base goal supposed to be mere eternal life Alone. Is that the only desire, the only hope that's supposed to drive us? Because if it is, then what do you do after you've achieved that goal by placing your faith in Jesus Christ? I think you see the answer to that in the lives of many Christians. They've achieved goal number one, eternal life. And so now on to all the other lesser gods of this world. They sort of return back to normal and live their lives like the rest of the world. and the result is that's nearly impossible to tell them apart from anyone else, because they essentially have the same desires. How do you reconcile this? How do you reconcile this call for the church to be holy on the one hand with the idea that salvation is by grace through faith on the other, if the thing that we're supposed to value is mere eternal life? I mean, I already got that in Jesus, right? So, why should I care about holiness? Why would I seek that out? And I think there are many ways that we could answer that question, all of which would ultimately sort of miss the point. I mean, we could point to the promises of God and discuss how obedience is ultimately good for us, and that would be true. That's absolutely true. Or we could simply point to duty and say that we should pursue holiness because we ought to, and that would also be true. We're obligated to be holy. But none of those answers in and of themselves get down to the real issue, which is, what is objectively the most valuable thing in the universe? What are we supposed to long for more than anything else? What would we long for if our minds were not clouded by our sinful thoughts? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is the glory of God. The glory of God is the foundational desire so to speak, that's supposed to eclipse all our desires for everything else. The hope of seeing the glory of God is what lies at the root of God's promises. It's this same glory that explains where the obligation in our duty comes from. The glory of God is the basis of every single concept that you find in the Scripture, Literally everything that's written in this book, everything that God hopes to communicate to you through these sacred scriptures is tied back in some way to His passion for His glory. We discover on the very opening pages of this book that man was created for this purpose, that sin has disrupted this purpose, and then the entire rest of the book from that point on is describing what God is doing to restore that purpose and the role that you can have in it as creatures made in His image through Jesus Christ. As I said at the very beginning of today's message, we're currently exploring the topic of gospel-minded prayer. And the goal of this little mini-series through these nine verses is to explore how the gospel transforms something as basic as our prayer life. Well, if there was ever a disciple whose thinking was radically and fundamentally transformed by the hope of the gospel, I think we'd have to agree It's the Apostle Paul. This man was simply captivated by the power of this message. He even literally wrote at one point, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He was just absolutely controlled by the truths this message proclaimed. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we look for the most basic motivations in Paul's prayers, when we look for the desires that shaped the things that he really hoped for, the things that he would even ask God for, we find at the root of it all is the glory of God. We saw this last week. I said there's often this kind of butterfly effect in Paul's writing where he understands the connection between the butterfly flapping its wings in Africa and the hurricane that occurs in New York three weeks later, only he understands this at a theological Level, He has a very clear picture of the entire theological system described in the scripture. And so he can see how one part is connected to another and another and another and so on. And this is actually very helpful for us because uh, through it he helps us understand the relationship of these doctrines with one another. The only problem is that Paul tends to go from the hurricane in New York backwards to the butterfly that started, in, that started it all in Africa. So even though we're moving forward on the page, we're usually moving backwards conceptually. So I said that sometimes it's easiest to read Paul upside down. You start at the end of his purpose clauses and you work your way back up. That gives you the best picture of his heart. And that's what we're doing here. I said that Paul explains the types of prayers that he's making for the Philippians in verse 9. And if you're going to understand why he's making these prayers, you actually have to begin at the end of the purpose clauses that he begins to pile up in verse 10. And as we worked our way through those purpose clauses, we came to the very last one, which occurs at the end of verse 11, where Paul says that he prays all these things, most specifically, actually, he's praying that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, quote, to the glory and praise of God. That's the bedrock of Paul's motivation. And it explains not only why Paul prays for the Philippians, but why he prays for their holiness specifically. In fact, as we begin to trace our way backwards from that statement, everything else begins to sort of fall into place. It's not too hard to understand. Second half of verse 10, we find the second to last purpose clause. Paul prays the way he does so that, or in order that, the Philippians would be, quote, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I want you to note this. He prays that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And when he prays this, he isn't praying for their salvation. Not here. I've struggled with this a little bit as I've wrestled with this verse. I thought initially that Paul was praying for salvation here because Paul's not opposed to, to thinking in this way. He has no qualms about urging Christians to make their salvation sure by persevering in their faith. It's just that he just expressed back in verse 6 that the fruit the Philippians are bearing is already indicative of their salvation, and he's quite confident, actually, already that they're going to be standing with him in glory. That's partly why he's so grateful for their gift. It's evidence to the fact that they are saved. Further, you look here, and Paul doesn't say that he prays for their holiness so that they'll be qualified to stand with him in glory. We see that type of prayer occur at times. For instance, 2 Thessalonians 1, 11, and 12. Uh, Paul says with respect to the Thessalonians, to this end we... And by the way, listen how similar this prayer is here. He, very similar, but a couple key differences. He says, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus might, may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There we see Paul is praying that they would be worthy. He's praying that they would be glorified in Christ. Everything seems to point to perseverance and perseverance for the sake of being considered worthy of their salvation. Now that's not a Worthiness that comes apart from faith but a worthiness that occurs because of faith like their perseverance points back to the fact that the Thessalonians have faith just like the Philippians gift does here Paul's praying for that so this isn't to imply that salvation occurs apart from grace and Paul prays that prayer it's just saying he's praying for the fruit that points to their faith so that God will grant them entrance into his kingdom on the basis of their faith that's not what Paul is doing here in Philippians There's nothing about qualification here whatsoever. Now, why does he want them to be pure and blameless in the day of Christ? We saw the answer last week. It's to the praise and glory of God. He wants them to be filled with the fruit that comes through Jesus Christ on the day of Christ so that God might get the credit for it. It goes back to the glory of God. And like I said last week, this is significant because it means that Paul's concern for people isn't a concern for people only. Rather, it's a concern for people that flows out of his concern for the glory of God. This is key. Again, we tend to restrict the goodness of the gospel down to the hope of eternal life. We think the reason why the treasure or the pearl are so valuable is because it means eternal life for us. Or even more specifically, it means that we won't go to hell. And that's not the only thing that makes this good news of the kingdom so valuable. At the very root of all biblical concerns is the glory of God. And the hope of the gospel is not just that we won't suffer eternal death in hell, it's that we'll experience eternal life in heaven with God. And do you know what I mean there? It it means that we'll actually get to be with God and behold His glory. And as we'll behold His glory, we'll actually delight in Him. Listen, we'll glorify Him, we'll declare His worthiness as we enjoy Him. That's what what makes these treasures such a valuable discovery, the hope of delighting in God as He's glorified in us. Point being, the glory of God is at the root of it all. It isn't just about us. It's about Him as He's glorified through us as we delight in Him. And the reason why this is so important is because it means that the work of the gospel doesn't stop after a person has been saved. It's very easy to fall into this kind of thinking. You often hear me say, for instance, the purpose of the church is worship. But its present mission is evangelism. The purpose of the church is worship, but its present mission is evangelism. And I think it's very easy to stress the evangelism part of that statement. In fact, lately that's exactly what I've been doing with you all. I tell you that every aspect of our worship will increase when we die, except the ability to add new worshipers to God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. I tell you that this is the only reason why God has left us here on this earth, separated from His immediate presence. It's the only reason why He would leave His beloved here, because there are others whom He also loves, whom He wants to bring into His presence with us. In short, I tell you that the reason why you exist here right now on this planet is to expand the glory of God horizontally by taking the gospel out to those who haven't heard it yet or received it. And that's all true, by the way. I don't don't recant any of that. This is the reason why the church exists on this planet. It is God's foreign embassy, so to speak. And you are all His ambassadors. He has left you in a foreign land, and a kingdom that is not your home, and the reason is so that you can proclaim his terms of peace to the enemy. So if you don't know the meaning of life, friends, that's it. That's it for the Christian. It's not really a mystery. It's actually very, very clear. So this is all true, and I tend to think that we do need to emphasize that component because it's easy to forget just exactly what our immediate goal in life is right now. But that being said, I don't think the tr- uh, I think the trouble that can occur when we stress only the second half of that statement is that we begin to define success or even faithfulness solely by the number of conversions that we or perhaps our church produces. After all, if the goal is the advancement of the kingdom, then how do we know that we're achieving that goal? It's through conversions, right? No conversions, then. No success. We haven't accomplished the goal. But you see, that's not the goal. Conversions are not necessarily the goal. And this is why I tried to craft that statement so carefully. The present mission of the church is evangelism. But its purpose, its goal, is worship. Or stated another way, it's the glory of God. The glory of God is the reason why the church exists. You see, there's this whole second half to the Great Commission, and I've, I've pointed this out before, but it bears repeating because it's often overlooked. Jesus dis- defines the disciples' mission as this. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You hear that? He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the evangelism part. That's the conversion part. But then he continues, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's the worship part. He says, teach them to be holy. Teach them to glorify my Father in the way that I've commanded you. So there's actually two parts of the Great Commission. It entails not only making converts, but also turning these converts into full-fledged worshipers. And do you know why that is? It isn't simply because these worshipers will then turn around and create more worshipers no it's because the very purpose of the gospel is the glory of God Again I say it all the time Titus 2:14 Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us quote to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works Jesus died listen Jesus died for our worship He didn't just die so we wouldn't go to hell. He died so that we would glorify His Father in heaven. I mean, you want to talk about a sincere prayer, right? Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Meaning, for our Father in heaven, glorify Your name. And He didn't just pray it, He lived it. In fact, He died for it. Point being, if the, if the point is to create worshipers, then the mission doesn't stop only after a person has placed their faith in Christ. No, it continues beyond that to teach them all to do all that He commanded. And again, why? It's because that glorifies the Father. It's as simple as that. God is glorified through our obedience and love. Again, people tend to miss this. Baptist churches, actually, will often tend to miss this. But you look here, Paul... Paul doesn't pray for their sanctification, their spiritual growth, simply so that the gospel will advance through their maturity. Now, why does he do it? What does it say? He prays that they would be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Why? To the glory and praise of God. It's as simple as that. He wants them to achieve maturity in their sanctification here because that glorifies God then or there, however you want to think about it. Again, this means that sanctification is a kind of means in and of itself. Yes, it should be working towards a particular purpose in this life, mainly the advancement of the kingdom of heaven, but at the same time even if it never advances the kingdom numerically, it's still a worthwhile endeavor since the root motivation in the gospel isn't simply adding converts, it's adding worshipers to the glory and praise of God. This is one way that gospel-minded prayer is going to express itself. I think we should expect that it's going to be expressed in seeking the salvation of lost sinners, right? Gospel-minded prayer, it makes sense. But it will also express itself in prayer for the sanctification and growth of the church. Reason being, the most valuable thing in the universe is the glory of God. And a church filled with obedient worshipers, and most especially a church filled with obedient worshipers whose worship comes through the grace of God, that gives glory to God. Again, Paul's prayers begin to make sense once we understand the foundation of his motivations. He prays not just for converts, but for the sanctification of the church. Because the sanctification of the church brings glory to God. So then, how does this prayer develop? I think we find the answer in the beginning of verse 10. At the beginning of verse 10, we find another of these purpose clauses, and this also makes a lot of sense once we understand the base of Paul's motivations. He prays for the things that he prays for in verse 9, quote, so that you may approve what is excellent. Or more literally, so that you may discover that which truly matters. That's maybe the better way to phrase this. Uh, What is excellent is okay. It's just that the term that he uses here tends to carry a sense of comparison. Like it's not just that that these are excellent things, it's that they're better. So something along the lines of the things that are superior or the things that matter is really the better way of translating this. And hopefully you can see the logic here. Again, you follow the chain of purpose clauses, and the idea is that since Paul wants God to be glorified, he prays for a pure and blameless church. And since he wants a pure and blameless church that glorifies God, he also prays that they may be able to discover that which truly matters. Again, why would he do that? Why would he pray for their ability to, as the ESV states, approve what is excellent? Because again, Paul wants these believers to glorify God with their lives. And that means that they must learn to conform their lives according to what God esteems as valuable or important. That's not something that they're going to do or understand naturally. Not after the fall. Not after sin has corrupted their minds. Not only does sin cause us to not value God and His glory in the first place, but even after the believer has been transformed by the Spirit, so they do finally love God, even still they have to grow both in their understanding of what glorifies God and and how to actually do that. It's like I said just a couple of weeks ago, one of the effects of sin is that it's corrupted the mind. Man pushes away the truth and the result is that mankind has become, in the words of Ephesians 4.18, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Due to the hardness of their heart. He becomes controlled by what Paul terms as deceitful desires, according to Ephesians 4.22. Again, this all happens due to the hardness of their heart. That's the ultimate root of the ignorance that alienates man from the life of God. They're ignorant because of their sin. They don't want to believe, and so they thrust the truth away. Now the Spirit transforms a believer's heart so that that element can be removed, and that's obviously the most important part. We can now see the truth because we're no longer compelled to turn away from it. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we just immediately understand what it means to glorify God. Nor, for that matter, do we do it. Now it's something that in this life we have to grow into, progressively over time. That's why we come to church and listen to sermons. We do it to learn the will of the Lord so that we can then go out and do it. Hopefully you understand what I'm saying here. If the the glory of God is the goal, and if man was made to glorify Him specifically, and if sin has disrupted his ability to do that, then man must change so that he can once again be conformed to that image. God's will is the standard, and man must be transformed to fit that. It's not God that must change, but man. That's really important a really important element to keep in mind in prayer by the way. God isn't the problem when it comes to prayer. When we make requests, we're not pleading with him in order to correct some deficiency on his part in him. As if he has an unwilling heart or something like that. No, we're praying because of the deficiencies that exist in us. We're the ones that need to change. And how does this occur generally? With respect to our conforming to His will, it occurs through the renewal of the mind. And this is why Paul is praying in this way, that the Philippians might be able to approve what is excellent. He knows that the Philippians must conform to God's standards if they're going to glorify God in the day of Christ. And that's not something that just happens. They don't just automatically become pure and blameless for the day of Christ. No, it's something they must grow into through the renewal of their mind. They must learn how to be pure and blameless. And so Paul prays that they may approve what is excellent, They may that they may discover what is better, what is best. This is a prayer for right values. It's a prayer rooted in the hope, first of all, that the Philippians might come to desire the glory of God more than anything else. And then second, that they might be able to perceive just what it is exactly that brings Him glory. Let me say that one more time. This is important. Listen closely. This is a prayer rooted in the hope, first of all, that the Philippians might come to desire the glory of God more than anything else. And then second, that they might be able to perceive just what it is exactly that brings Him glory. I have to say my original intent when I began preparing for this morning's message was to keep going and to work our way through the rest of these verses. I wanted to get on to the actual request that Paul makes in verse 9. But the more I started to consider the implications of these two purpose clauses, in this last purpose statement in particular, the one that Paul actually leads with here, this idea that he's praying for the Philippians, that they may be able to approve what's excellent, the the things that really matter. When I considered the implications of that purpose statement, in light of everything else that we're about to encounter in Philippians, the more I realized how significant this statement is, how significant this prayer is. And this, this right here, is exactly what it looks like to pray with a gospel-oriented framework in your mind. You see, when Paul gets this gift from Epaphroditus, which is the occasion for this letter, it apparently comes with a report as well, a report about what's going on in the Philippian church. Now, it's very difficult to piece together just what exactly is taking place in Philippi when Paul writes this response. But at the very least, we can discern that there are at least a couple of problems going on there. Neither of these seem to be major concerns. On the whole, Philippi seems to be faring fairly well through these struggles, so I don't want to over-exaggerate this and make it sound like this is a situation in Philippi that was quite dire. It wasn't. Still, there seem to have been at least two issues that were yet prominent enough That Paul felt the need to exhort the Philippians to deal with them appropriately. The first problem was persecution. We'll see this come out as we move through the rest of chapter 1. Paul notes chapter 1 verses 29 to 30 that it's been granted to the Philippians to suffer for Christ's sake and to be engaged in, quote, the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. That has to do with Paul's imprisonment in Philippi and his current imprisonment in Rome. The Philippians appear to be suffering for their faith in the same way. The second problem was internal disagreement. And I don't know I would go so far as to use the the word division here because it doesn't seem that the church has actually been fractured by this disagreement just yet. But they're apparently having trouble seeing eye to eye on things. This comes out in chapter 4 when Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That entreaty that he makes there to be unified also seems to serve as the background for what we'll encounter at the beginning of chapter 2 when he urges the Philippians to be of the same mind, having the same love, doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, counting others more significant than themselves. Now, whether or not these two problems are related to each other isn't clear. Like, it's not clear if the persecution is in some way a source of the division. Personally, I think it probably was. Either way, it's not entirely clear here. We can't know. I think that's a possibility. I'll explain why as we get there. Either way, whether these two problems are interconnected or not, that's what's happening here in Philippi. There's persecution and there's disagreement. Meaning the church is struggling to face this challenge with a united front. Now think one more time what Paul is praying here in verse 10. He's praying that they may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Again, they're facing these troubles And Paul says, listen, when I think of you, I'm so thankful. And I just want you to know, I I want you to glorify God in the day of Christ's return. So I'm praying for you, that you would be able to discern what truly matters. Do you get the sense of what Paul's after here, with all of that in the background? What's he mean by this? Well, I think he means at least a couple of things. First off... It means that he's praying for their perseverance in the faith. Again, they're wavering. Now, they're not wavering much, but they're starting to waver. And Paul wants them to be able to discern that the hope of the gospel far surpasses any loss that they may suffer for the sake of Christ. Again, you get into chapter 3 where Paul starts talking about how he considers everything is lost for the sake of knowing Christ, and that's what he's praying for them. Here in chapter 1. Again, this is a prayer about value. He's wanting them to remember that the message of the kingdom is the treasure hidden in the field. It is the pearl of great price. They'd be a fool not to trade the whole world in exchange for this single gift that's able to save their souls. Paul wants them to be able to discern that hope. And not only this, but God, or but Paul wants them to be able to discern what is worth compromising for and what is not. This is actually the second thing that Paul is aiming at when he prays for this ability to approve what is excellent. He's praying for the unity of the church, and this occurs in two ways. On the one hand, he wants them to realize that a watered-down gospel, just plain, isn't worth it. You see, that's apparently where part of this. Division may be coming from. It appears that there may be an element in the church that's saying, hey, you know what, if we just act a little bit more like the Jews, maybe we can blend in, and no one will really bother us. It's not a full-on Galatian heresy per se, but they're starting to say, hey, maybe if we just compromise on a few points, we'll be spared this persecution. They're not saying you have to take on Jewish works to be saved or anything. They're just saying maybe this is a way to, to take some of the heat off. And yeah, that may be able to save their skins for a while. But depending on how severe the compromise is, no, it may not ultimately result in their damnation per se, but even still, it's not worth it. Because the glory of God is at stake. you get what I mean there? Someone may think, what's the big deal? If I can still go to heaven without suffering for my faith through just a little bit of compromise, then why not do it? What's the big deal? The big deal is that the glory of God is diminished through that compromise. So no, they shouldn't do it. They should not do it. It isn't worth it. Paul wants them to be able to perceive that and agree with one another. It's as he says at the end of chapter 3, after urging them against this uh, Judaizing influence that we'll get to later on, he says, let those who are mature think this way, and if anything, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also uh, to you. He wants them to agree that there's nothing of worth to be found in turning to this influence for any kind of hope. That's one way that this prayer aims towards unity. He's praying that they would be able to agree on what is of worth in the gospel and so become unified. Agree with one another. And then on the other hand, I think he also wants them to perceive the value of Christian Christian unity in and of itself. Now I want to be very careful in how I phrase this because, again, the base concern is the glory of God. So I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. We should never value unity over truth. There are times when it's appropriate to separate from others, even Christian brothers and sisters, in order to preserve the truth. Paul himself is willing to do this. He will divide over the truth because the root concern, once again, is the glory of God. And since the glory of God is what matters, truth should not be compromised. That said, the value for truth over unity should not be confused confused with holding unity cheaply. It should not be confused with holding unity cheaply. In fact, I think we'll see next week, there's actually a sense in which unity is necessary for truth. Meaning, if you devalue unity, you'll actually lose the ability to discern the truth. Again, I can't explain the dynamics of all that right now. We'll get there next week. There's not time today. The point is simply that we should not think that unity is unimportant. Again, we'll see this next week. It's actually incredibly important for the sake of truth, actually. Like, it's actually something we should contend for. It's that important. I think that's what Paul is praying for here. Think about that for a minute. You hear Christians talk all the time about contending for the truth. How many, though, talk about contending for unity? You understand my point there? No, we can't compromise the truth. That's right. But that doesn't mean that we should immediately separate from a brother either when they're in error, because again, unity is important as well. And so the first step when there's disagreement is not to separate, but to fight for agreement, to work towards unity. It would seem that this is what Paul has in mind here as well. He wants them to value unity in the church enough to actually strive to agree with one another. He wants them to discern the value of Christian unity enough to contend for it. The overall idea, the overall idea as simple as it sounds, is that he wants them to be able to discern what is important and what is not so that God can be glorified in them. Yes, it's worth dying for the sake of the gospel. It is worth dying for the sake of the gospel. Not only does it bring glory to God, but eternal life with Christ is worth more than the riches of this earth. They need to be able to discern this in order to stand firm. No, it's not worth compromising truth for safety. Even if it means they won't suffer eternal death, it's still, not worth, it's still worth suffering loss in this life for the sake of truth, because that brings glory to God. That being said, they must also value unity. And so struggle for agreement. They shouldn't toss these relationships away at the first sign of trouble. They need to actually fight to maintain the bonds that they have in Christ. Because it's as they maintain this unity that they will be equipped to discern the truth that brings glory to God. There's a lot to ponder here, is there not? I feel like we could spend a couple of weeks considering what are the, quote, things that truly matter in this light. That would be a worthwhile use of our time. I think, for instance, of all the church splits that occur that have nothing to do with any real substantial doctrinal truth. People get mad over the style of music, or an associate pastor starts to get a a little ambitious and want a pulpit ministry, and before you know it, the church is divided. Think about how these types of things could be avoided if we remembered that the glory of God is what matters. And that unity is critical for the, growth, uh, for the church to grow into the image of Christ. We wouldn't divide over such trifles if we could only remember that, we should, that what we should cherish is the glory of God, right? Not our musical preferences. And that Christ gets all the glory for the growth of the church, not any merely human pastor. There's a lot to dig in here if we wanted to. We're not going to get into that just now. Instead, we'll let Paul take us through that as we work our way through the rest of this epistle. The subject here is prayer. And so, for the moment, all I want you to consider is how this thought will transform the ways that you tend to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me use just one example. Earlier this week, I was saddened to learn that someone I admire has been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. Now, it's not anyone that I know personally, but they're a fairly substantial Christian teacher, someone who I'd even consider to be a kind of mentor through their writing. And So I was saddened to learn that they are now facing what is likely a terminal prognosis. How do you pray for someone like that? How do you pray for the Christian who has received the grim medical prognosis? Do you pray for their healing? Sure. Yeah. Of course you do. The question, though, is why? See, we tend to think that we need to pray for these types of individuals because death is such an awful thing to experience. But for the Christian, is it really? Really? Absolutely not, right? For us, death is the time of our rest. It's when we enter into the joy of our master. It's not something for us to fear. So then why do we pray for this healing? I think we find the answer later here in chapter 1. When faced with this same type of prospect, Paul says, If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You guys hear that? Paul's trying to discern which is better, which is superior, what is excellent to depart and be with Christ or to stay and benefit the Philippians. And what's the conclusion that he comes to? He concludes that it's better to live, but not because life is better than death for Paul. No, it's because it's better for the Philippians. It means that Paul will be able to continue to minister to them in a way that he can't when he's dead. So what's better in his mind? It's better to live and to minister to the people in Philippi. That brings glory to God in a unique way. And so, as much as he's looking forward to seeing Jesus, he'd rather live than die. Do you guys see that in that text? This is why you would pray for the healing of someone like this mentor of mine. It's not because his death would be bad for him, it would actually be a release for him. Rather, it's because his death is bad for the church. He's able to glorify God in his flesh in a way that's unique from many others, and most certainly in a way that's unique from how he will glorify God in heaven. And so we pray, God, heal him for the benefit of the body and for the glory of your name. We need your truth, Lord, and you've equipped him to teach us. So restore him. Please give us some more time to be built up by his teaching so that we can glorify your name from here on this earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's one way you pray for this man. And that's one way that this passage teaches us to pray for other Christians. It forces us to consider what is it that truly matters in this situation? What's really important here? And it shapes our requests accordingly. Another way it teaches us is by telling us how to pray for him specifically. What is this man's purpose ultimately? It's to glorify God. And yet as faithful as he is, as many books as he's written, he's still a sinner who will at times have trouble discerning how to do that. He's going to struggle to know what it looks like, for instance, as he tries to figure out the appropriate treatment plan for him and his family. I mean, do you try to fight the prognosis with every ounce of your being and perhaps spend the last several months of your life traveling to the hospital? Or do you simply devote as much time as you can with your family? What's best there? What about financially? How far do you go to extend your life? Do you do so at the risk of putting your family's financial future in jeopardy? For that matter, how do you make sure that they're taken care of after you're gone? What about end of life care? What's appropriate as a Christian according to what we believe doctrinally, theologically? I mean, do we say, please don't resuscitate me, I don't want to fight anymore if it means doing so under these types of conditions? When? How? What does that look like? These are the kinds of questions that stage 4 cancer patients are going to have to struggle with. And friends, these aren't easy answers. Even for someone who has spent their life teaching others about the Scriptures, you add in the emotion of it all on top of that, and a fallen mind that exacerbates those emotions, and these types of decisions are not easy. The believer needs wisdom in this situation to know what to do to best glorify God. And not only this, but then they need the spiritual strength to do so in a way that glorifies God. It doesn't matter who you are, right? When you get that type of prognosis, it's going to be very hard not to be overcome with grief, for instance. And that's okay. Sorrow is an appropriate response to the effects of sin in this world, and the believer needs to know that so that they can grieve and be sorrowful, and yet the gospel tells us that we do not have to grieve without hope. And that's often something very hard for the Christian to do in that scenario. It can be very difficult for them to remember the hope of the gospel and face their future without fear. The gospel gives us that hope. But just like the Philippians, as they face persecution for their faith, it can often be hard for the cancer patient to remember that hope and face their future without fear. So again, how do you pray for the Christian in this scenario? You pray not only for their healing so that God might be glorified through their service, that they can perform in the flesh, because such glory glory is what truly matters. But you pray also that they themselves might be able to approve what is excellent, that they may be able to discern what is better, so that even if God does not restore them, they may yet glorify Him even in their death. In short, you pray as Paul prays here, that they may approve what is excellent, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Now again, this is just one example of how this understanding of the glory of God shapes our understanding of prayer. And even though this is just one example, I don't want you to lose sense of the scope of this concept. This is how you ought to pray for the brother or sister considering a job in a new town. It's how you should pray for the mother or father laboring to raise their children in the Lord. It's how you should pray for church leaders as they consider how to best minister and lead the church. It's how you pray for the brother or sister who's struggling in their fight against sin. This is something every Christian needs in essentially every circumstance. We all need to be able to discern what is most excellent, what it is that truly matters so that we might pursue those things that will truly glorify God in the day of Christ. Now the question is, how do we do that? Right? What enables us to approve what is excellent? And we're going to get to the, discover the answer to that question next week as we finally get into the requests that Paul makes for the Philippians. Again, we now understand why Paul is praying. We understand the essential motives that drive his prayer for the Philippians. So how do these motives ultimately express themselves in the kind of request that he makes? We know that he wants them to be able to discern what is most excellent. Well, what does that mean that he's going to pray for then? That's what we'll explore in the fourth and final message from this passage next week. Let's pray.